Now, in the Bible, there are, if you read it regularly or if you spend some time around uh, the church, you realise there are a number of phrases in the Bible or lines, verses that become almost iconic or classic lines that everyone seems to know. Uh, people meditate on them and they hold on to them uh, very deeply. And, so, and a lot of them are the, the first lines of books of the Bible or parts of the Bible, things that people read uh, regularly. So think of lines like, you know, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Most people who've read the Bible could quote that to me. It's the first line uh, of the book of Genesis. Or perhaps when God tells Moses his true name, in Exodus, he says, I am who I am. Or the first line of Ecclesiastes, where the writer says, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. A lot of people reflect on that or know about it, <laughs> particularly after Christmas. No. Uh. And perhaps the first line of Psalm 23, which many people know very well and can repeat, the Lord is my shepherd. And we hold on to these lines. One of the most iconic or classic memorable lines in the Bible is a very short one. It's found in 1 John chapter 4, verse 16, and it's on the screen. The simple statement, God is love. God is love. Uh, and it's a very simple statement, isn't it? It's only three words, but it's very profound. And it's one that's very comforting for us to remember, to quote, or to think about as we read the Bible together. But it's also a statement that invites us, I think, to be moved just beyond quoting that phrase or thinking about it um, in that surface level to actually deeply asking, what does it mean when we say God is love? Because it asks us to think, you know, who is God really that we say this about? And what is love? And what does it mean for God to be love? And so that question in particular is what we're looking at this summer uh, here at St Mark's. And as between now and the end of January, we're going to go through the letter 1 John in the New Testament. As we, as we do this transition between one year and the next, I often find it helpful to have a, a breathing space, personally, of a more meditative or reflective time. You know, sit back and think about some of the questions of, you know, well, who are we? What are we doing? Or what's, what's my plans for life? Um, as many of us prepare our New Year's resolutions or our goals this week, we think about what's going to happen in the year to come. It's helpful to have in the background of our mind, I think, the question, well, what is God asking me? in my life this year and how is he going to shape my resolutions and my goals if we're followers of Jesus how does that shape the life that we're going to live in 2020 I think first John is a letter that deals with these kind of questions uh, essentially it's a letter asking and explaining to Christian people how they can be faithful to uh, the center of their faith in Jesus and the true meaning of what it means to have him in their life and so as we go through the next five weeks, we're going to look at particularly the questions of how this message of God is love works out concretely in our own personal lives and in the community that God is uh, forming in the church. But first I want to give you some brief background to this letter, which many of you have read, some of you may have not. First um, John, or 1 John, however you want to say it, uh, is the first of a packet of three letters uh, of John, uh, which is towards the end of the New Testament. Most commonly, it's believed that this letter was written by the Apostle John himself, who was one of Jesus' closest friends and, we believe, wrote the Gospel of John as well. In that Gospel, uh, John refers to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved, and so he had a particularly close relationship with Jesus. And there are a lot of similarities in style and the themes between the Gospel of John and the letters of John, which make it plausible that he wrote them both. Uh, uh, 
and we know a bit about John from the history of the church. And after the, the years after Jesus left, um, John is recorded to have gone on to become the founder and the elder of a group of churches in the area of Ephesus, which is uh, a city in the area of modern-day Turkey. And John reportedly lived to a very old age, and he's probably the only one of Jesus' disciples who wasn't martyred. He wasn't killed for his faith in Jesus. He's the only one who lived to a natural death. Now, John also possibly wrote the book of Revelation later in his life, but we're not unsure as to whether it was him or someone else called John. It's a common name. Um, now, the particular letter that we're looking in First John is, seems to have been written to churches under John's care to respond to some emerging problems within their communities, particularly confusions that were arising and false ideas about Jesus that were starting to be spread and causing divisions within the church. So in this letter, John is particularly concerned, as we read it through, to emphasise and explain the truth that Jesus was a real human being and also that he was truly the divine son of God as well. And he's concerned to say, well, what does that mean for us as Christians if that's true, as members of the church? And the reason he, I think he had to do this is that there are tendencies that appeared very early in the church, and they do so to this day, that relate to the difficulty we tend to have of keeping our life and our faith together with integrity and fullness and knowing the fullness of, of what God is trying to teach us. So there are two early issues that arose in the church which are what we call docetism and Gnosticism. Now those are technical words, but as we describe them you might recognise the ideas or the feelings behind them. So docetism, it comes from the word means appearance. Okay, so it's the idea that Jesus was actually not really a flesh and blood human being like us, but actually a spiritual being like an angel or a ghost of some kind who actually just appeared to be human. This was um, a common idea in the early church. And because I think people were very uncomfortable in those days with the idea that God, in a sense, could get his hands dirty in the world and to become a real person. And so docetism is the idea where it says, well, Jesus never really suffered the Son of God never actually died. He, he maintained the dignity we think spiritual teachers and leaders should have. And so, coincidentally, we can do the same. We don't have to suffer. We don't have to endure indignity and humiliation as his followers. We don't need, uh, as followers of Jesus, to address our own human failures, our suffering. We can get away with that. And so, docetism says, well, Christians can live on a higher spiritual plane away from the messy reality of the world. So you can see it's a kind of hyper-spirituality, it's an avoidance of reality, and it's something that many of us attempted to do to, uh, today as well. You know, we may have known Christians that in, our in our time who perhaps seem out of touch with normal life, you know. There's a docetic mindset, we're not really present, we're overly spiritual. So that was one problem in the early church, and the other was the issue is what we call Gnosticism, and that's the idea that the gospel of Jesus is not really for ordinary people. So gnosis, as the word means, it means knowledge. So for these people, the gospel is really a message about a kind of higher secret knowledge that's accessible only to particularly elite intellectual people, the really spiritual ones. So God's given a message to chosen, divine, special people, and he's going to call them out of this world of darkness, which is ruined, um, and call us out of our weak human bodies into a spiritual world above, away from all the other people who, aren't, who haven't been called. You know, so Gnostics were known for saying that the way we, we behave in our life doesn't really matter because this world is an illusion. We're going to leave it behind. It's not real. And you can basically do whatever you want and God will still save you because what you do is not real. Um, and so the gospel, you know, so 
What John is concerned to do in this letter is to encourage the churches under his care to resist these tendencies in their communities with the actual good news of Jesus. So the gospel that John has given them is that God has actually really entered into our world, our physical world. He was really a real person and the world is good. He loves it. He wants to save it. And so the people who are followers of Jesus are meant to reflect that love that God has through genuine transformation of our ordinary lives, our real lives, including our bodies, and to live in communities that embody the love of God for the world. And so we can see these ideas being addressed in the first chapter of the letter, which we just read today. So in the prologue, essentially, to the letter, in the first four verses, John begins by speaking about Jesus, who he was, and what the good news of Jesus actually is. Who is this Jesus? Who is he? And who, this Jesus that John knew and loved. And we can see as we read these first verses that John is adamantly convinced of the tangible, physical reality of God's appearance among them in Jesus. He is fully convinced that God came to them in Jesus, but he was a real person as well. So he says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. So this first verse is almost like a catalogue of the physical senses that you could possibly see. The only thing that's missing is smell, perhaps, or taste, which might be a bit weird to put in. So I'm glad that he just used these three. So he says, Jesus was real, you know. We heard him. We saw him and we touched him with our own hands. He was a real person you could touch. He wasn't a spirit that just appeared. But he also says, yet in this person, through his life, it was not just a man, but also an appearance among us of God's eternal life, the life that was with the Father, the word of life. And so what you can hear in what John is saying, I think, is the absolute reality and the intimacy of this relationship between Jesus and his friends and the transformation of their whole life that resulted from that. So John is not saying, I didn't tell you about a spiritual teacher who gave us a message. I didn't, this isn't just an angel that appeared to give us a word for you, a message of new knowledge for special people. Jesus was a real person like us and God lived in him with us. And now he wants to live in us too. As John says, this is why, that's why I'm teaching you these things, so you can share that life. He says, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And so you can hear with the message here that John gives to these people. He says, God's life has come into the world in a new way through Jesus. And it creates a community of fellowship between God and between his people. And that includes our whole life, including our physical bodies that we have, is part of this fellowship with God. None of us, nothing of us is left out. Anything less than that is selling out the reality of the gospel of Jesus and his life with us. And so we'll come back to that idea in a minute. Um, so in the second part of this chapter then, uh, after that, he goes on to explain some of the implications of this. Particularly, well, what does it mean for God to dwell in our world and in us? And what does that mean for us? So the key idea here in verses 5 to 10, then, as he goes on, is that, in, is that God in Jesus, as, he, as he's come into the world, has brought a clarity of light, truth, and transformation to our world 
which we need to grapple with now if we're going um, to live it out. So he says, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. So for me, this lays out fairly boldly, I think, the importance for John that the followers of Jesus need now to be aware that God's intention is to deal with the evil and sin in the world and to drive it out and not to compromise with it in any way because there is no darkness in him. And this is in contrast to that tendency I said earlier about Gnosticism, which is to say, well, the world's evil, but God doesn't have that much to do with it. He doesn't care about it. Um, he's just going to grab us out of the world and leave, leave the rest behind. No, John says, when God appears in the world, he appears as a spiritual light that drives the darkness out of us and the world that God has made, that he wants to be filled with his light. So God, as we see in Jesus, he actually comes in, he doesn't stay away from the world, he actually presses in to the reality of the suffering and evil and death in the world in order to defeat them. Obviously, we've seen, they've seen that. John saw, that's what Jesus did. We saw him die. We saw him come back to life. We saw him defeat evil. And the point that John draws out then is that Christians can't then accept or rationalise the existence of evil or sin in our own life. More to the point, we can't ignore our sin and claim to still have true fellowship with Jesus. So in the verses following, there are a couple of false claims that uh, people in John's churches might have been hearing or making that's contrary to this message that God is light. So we see that John says, people says they're claiming that we can have fellowship with God and yet still walk in the darkness. You can have fellowship with God and still walk in the darkness. They're claiming that. And also claiming some people that they are without sin or that they haven't sinned. So they're claiming to be perfect or sinless. And the fundamental problem with these claims that people in these churches were making is the idea, I think, that well, I'm going, they're going to separate what they believe and how they feel about themselves from the way that they actually act and from our behaviour, which we're all tempted to do at times, you know, to think that God is only really interested in my interior sense of who I am and not how that works out in real life. And um, that's a very persuasive false belief because it makes us feel comfortable to believe it and it avoids the, the pain of necessary change. I'm okay, God, God will be okay with me and the way that I'm behaving. Or, and all of us do this to some extent. So perhaps, you know, it's, you know, I'm a Christian, but I'm troubled by some of my entrenched bad habits and the failures that I have, and I think, well, maybe God's not particularly happy with this. But on the other hand, I can comfort myself and say, well, I am actually very passionate about God, I enjoy worshipping, I have strong feelings, and I believe the truth. So that means that things are okay. Um, now, John would say that that kind of thinking, which was pre prevalent in his church, is a failure to take on fully what does it mean to know that God is light. So God's light, he says, would shine on everything. It brings everything to light. It brings everything together. And so John is clear, we need to embrace the truth of God's concern for our life, our, including our physical life and what we do with that life in his light. And the reality that the life then that we're living needs his redemption, it needs forgiveness, it needs grace. So, you know, if Jesus wasn't a real human being, if he was just a spiritual experience, well, appearance, well, perhaps what really does matter is my own spiritual interior, my own knowledge and my experience, and what I do doesn't matter. How I behave or what I do with my body is irrelevant. That's this false idea. You know, I actually used to work with a man who believed this, not at a church, um, uh, 
But, um, and you know, First John could have been written to him. I actually quoted it to him in some conversations I had with him because he genuinely believed and would argue with me quite strongly that he was without sin, that he never sinned anymore now that he'd come to faith in Jesus. And the problem, was, the problem with that was, was that it was obvious to everyone who knew him, <laughs> you know, like anyone who knows me or you or anyone else, that he failed like the rest of us and he had flaws and weaknesses. And I was trying to say, it's okay, let's just acknowledge that that's true and God is actually wanting to heal us. You know, so his belief in Jesus was not grounded in reality about himself. I think that's what John is saying, you need to do that. Um, We need to get real, you know, acknowledge our need for God. God is light and we are not always full of light and so we need to confront our darkness in God's light and to receive transformation. So, and that is a difficult thing to hear about. It's a hard passage to reflect on because, it, because John's very stark and blunt about how he puts it. And that's a characteristic of John's teaching in general. He very much draws a contrast in his books between light and darkness, between good and evil. And he says, you need to face these distinctions. You need to walk in the light, walk in holiness. And that can be very confronting to read because it sounds as like if I do fail and I do still have sinful tendencies and darkness in me, then I'm lying when I'm claiming to be a Christian. But I don't think that believe that's the point. What John is actually encouraging us to do here is to embrace the good news that has actually appeared in Jesus. So God has a concern, he says, for the world as it really is and our lives as they really are. And his loving intention is not to allow us to remain to wallow in lies and darkness, but to bring us out of it. And so we can't claim to be walking with him if we remain in that darkness. So the word of life, eternal life, which John heard and saw and touched, has appeared for this transformation of us and for the world. It's got a purpose to drive out the darkness. And that's, I think that's actually one of the things we mean when we say God is love. God is love. So I think today is a helpful day uh, to just start reflecting on our understanding of this truth. What does it mean that God is love? Well, he, he's appeared among us to drive out the darkness and to, and to give us a new life. Um, we've just uh, passed through Christmas, you know, and as I said, we're in that quiet time before the new year. And this is the season we have celebrated this reality of God appearing among us. He's being born as a baby, a real person who you could see, you could hear, you could touch. And when he was a baby, you probably smell too from time to time. Um, so what does that actually mean for us, this reality? Well, at least one thing, I think, is that everything in our lives, and that means our real lives as they really are, is a matter of interest and attention and concern for God. And so he wants his light and his life and his love to move into those spaces in us, our darkness as well, to inhabit it, to enlighten it, and so that we're changed. And so we can, as John says, enter into fellowship with him, truthfully. So now I just encourage you, as you make your resolutions and your plans for next year, just... As part of that, I encourage you today to invite God's light into those decisions to shine inside us um, and to guide us where he wants us to go. Let me pray as we reflect on that this morning. We thank you, Lord, for this time that we have. This season when your closeness to us, the reality of Christ's birth in our midst is very close to our minds and our hearts. And I pray for those present here today that your light would shine in our hearts to give us the knowledge of the glory of Christ. I pray that we would know your love truthfully 
in our whole life that you would draw us closer to you. I pray that we would know what it means to walk with you and to know your love. In Jesus' name, amen.